In this episode, we are going to explore the darkest corners of the woods. Whether it be strange and missing people's cases, crazy folklore, or allegedly true experiences from viewers just like you, this episode will have it all. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. Now, be sure to hit that like button and subscribe if you're new, and get ready for some creepy and allegedly true Deep Woods horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. My Off-The-Grid Mistake by Jackson T. The decision to build an off-the-grid homestead was fueled by my desire to escape the hustle and bustle of city life. Nestled deep within the heart of an untamed forest, I found the perfect piece of land to start anew, with grand dreams to self-sufficiency and tranquility. I constructed my haven from the ground up. The first few weeks were exhilarating, to be honest. Each swing of the hammer and every nail driven into the place brought me closer to my dream. The isolation was initially daunting, but I quickly adapted to the soothing rhythm of nature's symphony. The canopy of leaves overhead embraced me and the gentle rustling of the wind through the trees became my lullaby. However, as the weeks turned into months, I noticed strange occurrences around my fledgling homestead. The rustling in the bushes at night became more pronounced. Eerie shadows seemed to flit just beyond the reach of my flashlight. I initially attributed these phenomena to my imagination in the forest darkness. One moonless night, I noticed a flicker of light dancing among the trees while walking back from a supply run. It was strange, but there were no other dwellings for miles. Intrigued, I followed the faint glow. It led me deeper into the woods, far from the comforting embrace of my homestead. After a treacherous hike, the light guided me to a clearing where an ancient-looking cabin stood, half hidden behind overgrown vines. The sight sent shivers down my spine, but my curiosity got the best of me. The place seemed long abandoned, its wooden facade weathered and worn. With trepidation, I pushed open the creaking door. Inside, a musty scent enveloped me and I noticed an eerie silence that contrasted sharply with my surroundings of the wilderness. Strangely, the interior was well maintained, as if someone had recently taken refuge there. Old furniture adorned this space and unsettling presence clung to every corner. As I explored further, I stumbled upon an old journal buried beneath the dusty papers. With trembling hands, I began to read the diary of a hermit who once inhabited the cabin. The first few entries were rather mundane, but as I delved deeper, a sinister tale would unfold. The hermit had lived a solitary life, much like my current situation, until he stumbled upon an ancient, cursed artifact deep within the forest. He described it as an ornate, obsidian statue that seemingly emanated darkness. He believed it granted an unimaginable power, but also unleashed an unimaginable evil. Soon after he obtained the cursed artifact, unsettling events began to haunt him. Shadows seemed to come alive, lurking in the corners of his vision. 
and malevolent whispers tormented his every waking moment. The diary entries grew increasingly more frantic, detailing his desperate attempts to escape the clutches of the darkness that was all around him, the entity that plagued him. As I read on, a sense of dread enveloped me and I couldn't help but draw parallels between his experiences and the eerie happenings around my homestead. Was it possible that this cursed artifact had found its way into my possession unwittingly? Determined to solve the mystery, I returned to my homestead with the journal tightly clutched. From that point on, I became increasingly paranoid, constantly scanning the shadows for signs of the hostility that seemed to be lurking just beyond my sight. One night, driven by fear and fascination, I returned to the cabin with the journal to investigate further. The moon cast an eerie glow on the path ahead, and the forest seemed to hush its usual nocturnal symphony. As I approached the cabin, the air felt thick with an otherworldly presence. Stepping into the cabin, the oppressive silence gripped my senses, and I noticed something unsettling. The journal had disappeared from my grasp, Panic gripped my heart as I turned to leave, but the door had somehow vanished. It was as if the cabin itself had trapped me inside. In the pitch darkness, I fumbled for a source of light, and as I ignited a small lantern, the shadows on the walls seemed to writhe and take form. Fear clenched my throat as I spotted the coarse... Fear clenched my throat as I spotted the cursed artifact sitting on a rickety shelf. The source of all this dread. The obsidian statue stood menacingly in its eyes, empty pits of darkness. It shifted its gaze with each step following my movements. Suddenly a low hum filled the air, resonating deep within my bones. Shadows converged around me, merging into a monstrous humanoid figure. Paralyzed with terror, I watched the creature form manifesting itself. From the cursed artifact's malevolence, it towered over me, an amalgamation of shadows and torment, its empty eyes piercing my soul. My mind reeled, unable to comprehend the horror that now confronted me. Desperate to escape, I lunged for the cursed artifact and snatched it from the pedestal. The creature let out an anguished wail and the world around me twisted and distorted. Time seemed to blur and my senses were overwhelmed by a cacophony of voices and screams echoing through the ages. Suddenly I found myself back at my homestead and the cursed artifact clutched tightly in my hand. The shadows were gone this time, the eerie happenings had ceased, but I couldn't shake that feeling that the creature in the cabin were forever bound to that cursed artifact, and by taking it away, I had severed their connection to my world. After that harrowing experience, I decided to rid myself of the cursed artifact. I journeyed far and wide, searching to find a perfect remote location where the malevolence would never harm anyone ever again. Deep in a dark, lonely cave, I sealed away the cursed artifact, hoping it would never return to the world. From that day forward, my homestead flourished, and peace returned to the wilderness. Yet I could never shake the memories of that horror that I witnessed. The evil shadows that haunted my dreams and the cursed artifact had nearly consumed my soul. I had learned a chilling lesson in the heart of the darkness. Some mysteries are better left untouched, for once unleashed, their horrors can never really indeed be contained again, but I hope that this remains undisturbed for generations to come. Green Boots by Swanson A. 
Dream Boots, an unidentified climber's body, has left an indelible mark on the main northeast ridge route of the towering Mount Everest. Revered by climbers and expedition teams, this enigmatic figure became a poignant landmark, forever associated with the treacherous and unforgiving nature of the world's highest peak. The origin of the name Green Boots can be traced back to the green Koflach mountaineering boots adorning the feet of the fallen climber. While the true identity of this individual remains shrouded in mystery, it is widely believed to be that of, of Suwong Paujor, the intrepid Indian mountaineer who embarked on the challenging ascent of Everest in 1966. Suwong was part of the Indo-Tibetan Border Police, the ITBP expedition from India, led by Commandant Mohinder Singh. It was a momentous occasion as the ITPB team was the first Indian group attempting to conquer Everest from the east side. The ill-fated expedition took a tragic turn on May 10, 1996. On that fateful day, Sudabar, Suwong, Smanla, Lance, Naik, Dorje, Murup, and Head Constable Suwong Paujor were caught in the unforgiving wrath of a blizzard while inching closer to the summit. Although three of their fellow team members wisely decided to descend back to safety, Smanla, Murup, and Paujor remained determined to conquer the summit and pressed forward. At around 15.45 Nepal time, a radio message from the trio reached their expedition leader, announcing their triumphant arrival at the top. After paying respects and leaving offerings of prayer flags, katas, batons, the leader Smanla decided to perform religious ceremonies and urged the other two climbers to descend without him. Unfortunately, this would be the last communication from all three of these brave souls. Concern and anxiety gripped the expedition team at the lower camps as the weather deteriorated. They witnessed two faint headlamps moving slightly above the treacherous second step at 8,570 meters, which is around 28,000 feet. But alas, none of the three climbers returned to the high camp at 8,300 meters, which is 27,231 feet. Their fate, forever intertwined with the frigid heights of Mount Everest remained sealed. In the wake of the disaster, controversy surrounded the fate of the missing Indian climbers. A group of Japanese climbers from Fukuoka unwittingly played a role in the unfolding tragedy. Climbing on the same route, the Japanese team encountered various individuals on the trail but remained oblivious to the presence of the missing Indian climbers. Unaware of their plight, they continued their summit the aftermath of the tragedy saw emotions running high with accusations and misunderstandings swirling between the Indian and Japanese teams. Reports surfaced suggesting that the Japanese climbers had seen the Indians in distress but had chosen to prioritize their own summit attempt. However, these claims were later clarified and the Japanese team denied abandoning or refusing to assist any of the dying climbers. Amidst the heartache and loss, Green Boots emerged as a poignant symbol of the perils faced by the climbers on Mount Everest. Over time, the body curled in the limestone alcove cave at 8,500 meters, 27,900 feet above sea level, became a sad landmark, a grim reminder of the ultimate price that some pay to pursue the Everest dream. 
In 2014, members of a Chinese expedition made the difficult decision to move Green Boots to a less conspicuous location. Despite this relocation, Green Boots' legacy endures, etched into the fabric of Everest history. Green Boots' fate is not an isolated incident on Everest, though. Approximately 200 other bodies lay scattered across the treacherous terrain, a haunting testament to the unforgiving nature of the mountain. Among them, Sleeping Beauty, Frances Arsentiev, who tragically lost her life during an unsuccessful descent from Everest after summiting in 1998, remained visible to 2007 when her body was ceremonially concealed from view. Another well-known figure on the slopes is Hannelore Schmatz, who earned the moniker The German Woman after summiting in 1979, but tragically perishing during her descent. Her prominent position on the south route made her a recognizable figure for years before being blown further down the mountain. Despite the triumphs and tragedies, Green Boots is a poignant symbol of the indomitable human spirit and the unwavering pursuit of conquering nature's most formidable challenges. While the true identity of this fallen climber may forever be a mystery, their story lives on as a testament to the profound allure that the unfathomable dangers that draw adventurers to the Mount Everest summit will forever be there. Green Boots remains an enduring presence, a silent guardian, and a poignant reminder that the pursuit of dreams can exact a heavy toll in the highest reaches of the world. Mountain Climbing in Hawaii by Mackenzie M. I am 19 years old and I live on the island of Oahu. I know many native Hawaiians do not take kindly to non-native residents, but I'm here for college, not to trash up the place. After all, I'm studying to be a geologist. This story took place when I was around 18 years old in my freshman year. I didn't know any better at the time, but two of my friends, who will remain anonymous, were seeking a thrill over Christmas break. So we decided to climb the Haiku Stairs, better known as the Stairway to Heaven. When I mention the Stairway to Heaven, it will be the abbreviation STH. For anyone unfamiliar with STH, it is an illegal hiking path, and this is due to its hazardous terrain and weather patterns. Anyone who gets caught hiking it is automatically fined $1,000. At the time, recreational weed was illegal, but we were stupid teenagers, and before we started our assertion, we decided to roll a blunt and get toasted. But when we started climbing, it was fun at first. We all had a nice ganja buzz. About two hours into our walkout, the buzz faded, and we got sleepy. We did not have the equipment to set up camp on the side of the mountain, so we pushed through it. Two hours later, we finally reached the top of the peak. We were in absolute awe. All the energy we had lost flew right back in as we looked at the vast island of Oahu below us. We ate our lunch that we had packed while we were smoking up a little more grass. We were now due a four-hour descent, and we were looking forward to it. We may be looking forward to our beds back on campus, but about 30 minutes looking into our descent, my friend had to go to the bathroom. We stopped on the trail so she could take a couple of yards off the trail to go do her business. My other friend and I were watching the tree that our friend was behind when out of the bushes behind my friend walked this filthy lady. She was covered in moss and dirt. 
It was as if she had been living in the forest for years without a shower. The woman walked up to my friend, and just as I was about to say something to the woman, my friend slammed her hand over my mouth. She whispered to me, You say anything, and she'll take you too, which was contradictory as she was just talking. But I listened as I watched the dirty woman. The dirty, cold skin holding a death grip on my friend's wrist. My friend was screaming and trying to escape the woman, but my other friend held me back as we both sobbed. The next moment, my friend was gone. I was in shock. The deep feeling in my stomach settled into a grueling pain. My one surviving friend ushered me to start walking back down. We started running. What would have taken us three and a half hours to walk, we got done in only an hour. When we got back to campus, my friend explained everything. I forgot to mention that she is native of Oahu and is familiar with the rich Hawaiian folklore. She told me that what had taken our friend was the Green Lady. She had lost her children in the woods and was spending eternity wandering the forest of Oahu looking for her children. I was in disbelief. I was never superstitious, nor did I believe in cryptids. But ever since my friend went missing that day, I, I believe. We reported her as missing the next day, claiming she was kidnapped. What else were we going to tell them? A monster took our friend? We also owned up to our exploration of the illegal STH, and yes, they fined us $1,000 each. They sent out a search and rescue team, and for two weeks they were scouring the forest looking for our friend. But only a few signs showed up. The story's moral is if you're planning on going somewhere illegal, just remember it's illegal for a reason. With no update, it's been quite a few years since our friend went missing. I implore you to be safe while hiking and not do anything illegal, as we did a lot of law-breaking that day. The outcome was far less than desired. Be safe, and thank you, Swamp Dweller, for telling my story. Eastern Kentucky Backcountry by Ridge Runner 606 Hello, you can call me D. I'm a local to the Appalachian Mountains in eastern Kentucky. Growing up in the mountains, you learn a lot about the outdoors and how to enjoy them, until you don't. It was a fall afternoon, and my dad and I were preparing to go sifting after we spotted a shelter about two miles back in the mountains while hunting for ginseng a few weeks prior. We packed our shovels and shakers and left for the trek back to the shelter. We scouted the area, everything was untouched, so we were the first to dig this shelter. The first two hours of digging and sifting were uneventful, until I saw something on my sifting screen that I'll never forget, clear glass looking beads of various sizes and colors. Bewildered at my find, my dad ordered me to bury them back and pack them up for the day. Fast forward to arriving home, I'm tired yet I can't get those beads off of my mind. Why, why couldn't I just keep them? That night I had terrible nightmares. Some may call it sleep paralysis. It was a native man, with white and black war paint adorning his face, a tattered, feathered-worn bonnet, and a single sharpened horn of a deer as a weapon. He glared at me from the shadows, firmly holding the horn. This has been a reoccurring nightmare since I was a teenager. I'm 30 years old now, and I still think about this all the time. If anybody listening has any idea, please let me know. The Drumming Sound by Shay 
Warning, this story does contain details of graphic violence. If you are queasy or do not wish to hear things like this, please be sure to skip forward. I'm writing to let everyone know that there's a real evil in the world, but I believe there's something beyond this life. This comes from my own experience, which I genuinely wish had never happened. I have been a stay-at-home mom and a caregiver for almost 10 years. In November, I finally got a job cleaning offices in Tennessee, Rogersville to be exact. I could clean these buildings alone every night. I didn't really mind, to be honest. I would listen to Swamp Dweller while I cleaned. On the night of December 6th, I was heading home on a long, dark road. My truck started to smell strongly like gas, so I decided to pull over and take a look. Now, I'm a 5 foot, 1 inch female. I'm tiny. I pulled over as close as I could to some sort of civilization, but it was pitch black. I used my phone to look under my truck, but as I was getting a good look underneath, I began to hear footsteps. I looked up and saw a man approaching me. I grabbed my phone from the ground and the man was in front of me before I could even react. The man grabbed a lanyard around my neck and began twisting it around in his hand. It got tighter with every turn of his wrist. The lanyard started to cut into the back of my neck. He threw me to the ground and jumped on me. He was choking me the entire time. I saw his fist coming and, and I braced for impact. Time stopped. I remember feeling the cold grass on my shoulders and the sound of rain dripping off the trees. I could feel my heartbeat slow. Then, everything went black. There was no sound, no light, absolutely nothing. I started to feel hands grabbing at me, pulling me. I saw gray shapes moving through the darkness. Faces started appearing. These faces had no eyes and long, dark mouths in the forms of a scream. One look became very clear. The eyes were hollow the black eye sockets, staring empty into my soul. I was just hoping anyone would help me, and I realized what I was looking at. It was a dark hood, no eyes and a soulless gaze. It was death himself. I started to hear a rhythmic drum sound. It was faint at first, and then louder and louder. The darkness began to turn to a red, sunset-like scene. I thought I was dead. I saw a tree that then turned into a forest. The location was morphing into a vast mountain range. I saw people standing at the base of the mountain. They were yelling in a different language, but I just knew what they were saying. Get up. Get up. I felt my body tense up. Every muscle felt like it contracted. I could feel my fingernails digging into my hands. The drums became so loud that I felt them in my chest. The red sky started to get brighter. The people stopped yelling and came running at me. They picked me up from the ground and lifted me to the sky, and as soon as they let go I woke up. I saw the man's face. He had let go of the lanyard and attempted to remove my pants. I pulled my knees up into his groin as hard as I could. I lifted him off the ground. He rolled off into the ditch. I jumped up, grabbed the door of my truck, and I got the gun from the center console and pointed it at him. He looked as if he had seen a ghost. He ran for his life. I returned to my truck and just watched the rain hit my windshield. While I was sitting there in the darkness, I started to hear the drums. They were faint. I finally got myself together and called the police. When the police arrived, the officer said something that would have stuck with me for the rest of my life. 
he said. Most people never experience what you just did. You stared death in the face and walked away. I have Native American ancestors from different areas of the country. I'm a native melting pot. Maybe my ancestors came to help me. I hope that was the case. If it was them, I would be forever grateful. So remember, the scariest, most dangerous monsters aren't always cryptids. Humans are sometimes the worst monster of all. Oregon High Strangeness by Lamar A. My name is Lamar. I am currently 15 and live in the state of Oregon, and what I'm about to share with you is 100% real. You have the choice of not of believing me, I guess, but I could add you to the list. I'm sorry I'm getting off topic. My first encounter with what I believed to be the Wendigo happened when I was 13 years old. I was on a hunting trip with my grandfather, Wayne. He is a retired army vet. The reason I'm telling you this will come into play later. We were out hunting rabbits and hares, because I thought the only way to become a man was to go out hunting. My mom forced me to do it anyway. She said I was too much of a shut-in, sitting on my Xbox too much, and I ended up getting a lecture about how when she was my age she would be outside, yada yada yada. So as soon as my grandfather had brought it up, she jumped at the opportunity to get me out of the house. To be honest, it was quite fun except for the not showering for a week. We were winding down for our last night there, only being able to snag three rabbits, mainly because I'm such a bad shot. The sun was setting, so we decided to hit the hay in our all-too-big-and-expensive tent made for six, even though I was only 5'10 at the time and he's probably 5'11", but I guess he needed his space. It was around 2 a.m. I only remember this because I had snuck my phone out when my mom wasn't looking. When we started noticing strange noises, like something heavy stomping around our camp, we noticed a horrid smell, like rotted meat and dead skunk. We thought maybe it was the rabbit but my grandfather told me there is no way that the rabbits would smell that bad. It took everything in our power not to start gagging, and for me, it takes a lot to make me gag. I am a teenage boy with two dogs, but the smell even made my eyes start to water. My grandfather also reminded me the rabbits were outside, so the thought had popped into my head that the noises could be a bear perhaps but my grandfather shut that down. He said, there is no way that is a bear. I almost soiled myself. What could be that big? I am no hunting expert, but I am pretty sure no other animal could be that big. My grandpa told me to stay while he checked it out. He looked outside of our tent's window, and then I saw his eyes bulge with what looked like fear. As if he could read my mind. He put his hand over my mouth to shush me. I had then gotten frustrated with him and moved his hand off my face and asked him what was going on. He then looked at me with fake calmness and said, Grandson, that is no bear. I got tired of hearing that and went to go see what he had seen. I lifted the flap of the tent window and I began to look out. 
I even laughed a bit, as when I looked in the direction of where he was looking at, all I saw was a pair of antlers sticking out of the bushes. I even attempted to put it on Snapchat to show everyone how my grandpa is with jokes, but my phone dies, which makes me angry because I have nothing to keep me entertained for the car ride back to Portland, all the way from Eastern Oregon. I was cursing myself for not turning it off during the trip to conserve power. But while I'm doing that, the thing that I thought was some sort of buck or elk started to rise. Then, I got a good look at the face that was carrying those antlers. The first thing I saw was those cold, dead, hungry red eyes. Then, the whole face. Dear God, I wish I had not seen that thing. It had like a skull face, but it was like, sort of like a canine. It had black matted fur that threatened to fall off with the slightest touch. This thing suddenly stood higher. Then I saw the rest of it. Long slender arms with claws on each of its hands. Bones that threatened to tear its skin with the slightest wrong movement. Then I noticed that the teeth, those teeth could tear flesh from anything if it wanted to. I was so scared, I even started crying. My grandfather pulled me down and kept asking me over and over if it saw me. My grandfather told me the only thing I could say was when to go. He said I was in a trance, like, like he'd just never seen before. He tried to get me to snap out of it, and he just could not. I kept repeating the same term over and over. One thing that got me to snap out of it, though, was the inhuman screech. And what I heard is nothing like I hear people say. It's hard to even imagine. It's like an eagle screech, but its screech would make its throat start to rip and tear, and then mix it with a man screaming in agony. It's a sound that is so inhuman that I don't know how to explain it. Then we heard it leave the bush and enter our camp. It then let out another screech which made me cover my head and fall to the ground crying. My grandfather was not able to get as good of a view as I had, so he silently zipped down the tent and peeked outside. When he did, he immediately zipped it back up. My grandfather came back with the most terrified look on his face. This freaked me out even more because my grandfather had watched his best friend get murdered had seen people burned alive after they were hit with napalm. He is a 200-pound man of nothing but muscle, and I've never seen fear in his face. We then remembered we had left our rabbits right by our tent. Then we heard it coming on away, and I could see the shape of it. This thing was most likely three feet taller than us at the very least. I then heard it start to crunch and tear the rabbits apart outside, which makes me think that maybe that's all at once. It then crunched loudly and it made me whimper, which caused the creature to raise its head and let out a deafening screech. At that point, I could not take it anymore and broke down crying for my mother. The creature then started circling the tent and would sometimes flinch at us, like it was playing with us, which made me angry. This thing was trying to play with its food before eating it. It's like we were toys and enjoyed our suffering. It could easily cut through our tent to get us. But what were we going to do with our metal BBs and measly hunting knife? 
we went hunting, and now we have become the hunted. What comes next will stay with my mind forever and the remainder of my life. This thing cut through our tent and put its head inside. My grandfather immediately went into protective mode and put me behind him. I was too much of a coward to investigate the face of death, but my grandfather had the heart of a lion in that moment. He took a knife and put it in his hand and he was ready to fight. All I could do is cry into his back. He then made a ballsy move and took his eye off the monster in front of us to tell me he is sorry and that he loves me. I looked at him and then went back to crying and told him in between breaths that I loved him too. The creature seemed to be annoyed at this point and attempted to get its hands through. And when it did, my grandfather let out a yell and stabbed its hand which made the creature rear back in pain and let out yet another screech. The creature was beyond angry and was about to go in for another round. But the sun had started to rise and the creature had slowly backed away and headed back into the brush, but then turned around and looked through the hole it had created. I swear it smiled at us, as if to say this was not over. It then retreated into the forest, and I have never seen it since. My grandfather had sprung into action, leaving over $1,000 of gear behind and pulled me all the way to our car. He did not even put on his seatbelt as he floored it out of there. We did not start talking until we were on the freeway back home, and he asked in a calm voice, did I know what that thing was? To which I said no, and he explained all about the Wendigo. Honestly, like I said in the beginning, I don't care if people believe this encounter, because I know it's true. I will be submitting another story on another day, and I hope you guys enjoy this. Carson National Forest Monster by Anonymous My brother-in-law just heard this story this past Christmas and he has been telling my sister and I that we should share it somewhere. And what better place than the swamp? My family has some property that backs up to the Carson National Forest in New Mexico. It has been in the family for years and my sister and I both spent our summers up there. It is gorgeous. Well, it is for people who lived out in far west Texas. It was nice and green, cool mountain air in the summer. It was always a relief to get up there and get away from a dusty ranch. My dad was ex-military and having two daughters, let us just say we did lots of outdoor stuff. He taught us survival skills and how to defend ourselves. We hunted and fished and did lots of camping and hiking. To us, it was always a fun time but I guess he felt the need to pass skills to us. We spent several weeks in the summer up there hiking with him and exploring the old cabins, mining communities, and checking out the big ditch project that was built for the Red River back in the late 1800s. I think that's the right date or something, but I am unsure. Anyways, it is a great place to hike with some beautiful high mountain lakes, streams, lots of wildlife, etc. This happened when I was in college, and my younger sister was still in high school. My dad was still at home, having to work, and would come up every few weeks to spend time with us. We were up there with our mom, and she mainly spent time in town or around the property painting. We spent our time on the jeep trails, or hiking, or sleeping. It was late June, maybe early July, 
and we had decided that we were going to hike up to the Lost Lake. It is one of my favorite lakes up there, because if you look at it from a certain angle, it looks like a heart. We set off in the morning, and we were prepared. We both had a small pack, our water, some snacks, and we both had a small hammock we planned to set up once we got to the lake, so we could enjoy the area for a while. I will admit to being an outdoor type, and I swear, when it's quiet enough, you can even hear the trees talking. We also always carry a knife when we hiked. My dad always insisted we have something, just in case an accident happened, or we just needed it. The hike was going well. Since the summer cabin is far up the valley, we just set out on a foot to the trailhead. To get to Lost Lake, you take another trail that goes up to Middle Fork Lake. Then you break off that trail for Lost Lake. We run into a few other hikers, but they are going to Middle Fork Lake, and we were pleased because it would look like we would have the lake to ourselves. It is a good hike with some long switchbacks at the end, but totally worth it because the lake is just beautiful and an emerald green color. We finally arrived and saw that we did have the lake to ourselves. We hiked around the lake and decided to hike back a bit to find a good spot to set up our hammocks. We walked into the tree line and the first thing my sister did was say, Do you smell that? And indeed I did. It was a dead animal for sure, with the strong scent of blood. We had both done lots of hunting and we knew the smell pretty well. And that is when I saw it. It was a deer carcass. But what was around it is what disgusted me. Placed around the deer carcass in a circle were its organs, entrails, etc. But it was not like it was being cleaned. It was like they were placed there in certain arrangements. With just piles of rocks in between everything. Like small little statues almost. Now I know how some people get disgusting with their kills. And I have had some guys try to gross me out, but I do not fall for crap like that. But this made me uneasy. It was just not being cleaned. It was like it was set up in a certain meaning. Or maybe it had a meaning all its own. I stepped back from this weird circle, and when my sister starts to say my name, it stops. Because then, we see the guy who had done this, and he looks like he climbed out from inside the deer because he is covered in blood and does not have much clothing on. At first, I thought he did not have anything on, but honestly, I did not try to check him out much. He was standing back away from his gruesome little circle, just standing close to a group of trees that were close together. He was maybe 20 feet or so from us. I think he was maybe trying to hide? Not for sure, but my dad had always taught us that if we ever found ourselves in a situation where we did not feel we were in control, to do everything in our power to take control of the situation. Do something that is going to take the other person by surprise. Do not do something they would expect you to do. So, this was raging through my brain, and I could also tell my sister was about to freak the heck out. So I stepped up and yelled, Hey, fairly good kill you got there. Did you use a bow? The guy just stood there, his eyes all crazy wide like he was stoked out of his brain on planet Pluto or something. So, I'm thinking, great, we ran into a guy getting his hunt on, and he had lost it, and now he's getting blood crazy with his deer. He was staring me down, and I was staring right back, and my sister was getting ready to run. I still don't know what came over me, but I then put my hand on my knife, 
that I kept on my waist just to show him that I was not completely helpless. Now, I do not know why I did it, but something told me to let him know I was not going to back down or be afraid. I kept eye contact with him, and I would guess he was maybe in his early 30s, but I am bad at guessing people's ages. He was pretty dirty though. You could tell that even with all the blood he had everywhere, he had not showered in quite some time. I start to back off and my sister had moved behind me, so I spoke again and said, So, I hope you have a great hunting day. Again, the crazy guy didn't say a thing, just stood there like a statue or something, or like he thought I couldn't see him if he didn't move or make any sound. We moved back to the lakeside again and booked it around the lake. My sister stayed up front, and she was shaking bad. I was mainly angry at first because if he wanted to get all crazy in the woods with this deer, then he should have gone further back up into the forest. We get back to the trailhead and stopped to get our bearing and looked at each other. I was scanning the forest line to make sure we were not being followed, and my sister was just in shock. We started down the trail pretty fast and I was hoping I could keep my sister together until we could at least reach the Middle Fork Lake Trail, or that we would even run into some more hikers. But the odds were not good on this trail because you must get an early start on Lost Lake Trail, and by now it was late morning and early afternoon. We were making good time and had not discussed what we saw, just started hiking back down. I started to get that feeling when you just know you're not alone. I kept checking, but I did not see a single thing or even hear anything at first. My sister refused to look back and just kept going but I felt like I had to keep checking to make sure that idiot was not following us. That is when the first stuff came flying at us. It was like small pebbles, but it really made me angry because it was obvious somebody was throwing them at us, and it could have only been him. My sister was almost running at this point, but I am a mouthy smart aleck. I blame the Texas upbringing, and darn it, this was my forest. I had grown up here, and these were my lakes, my trails, and I was not about to let some crazy dude ruin it for me. I started yelling back that he needed to go back to his deer and leave us alone. At this point, my sister is telling me to shut up and just come on, and I am thinking, no way, this guy is just trying to scare us. The pebble stopped, and then we started hearing barking and growling noises. My sister said, now he's growling at us? And I just told her to get on down the trail and ignore it. He was behind us pretty much the whole way, growling and making these barking noises occasionally, but I never caught a glimpse of him. Once we got close enough to where the trail joined with the Middle Fork Trail, he seemed to back off. I never caught sight of him from behind us, but I could hear him, and I just knew he was there. We started down the rest of the trail. My sister refused to stop or look behind her, so I kept checking every so often. I did not see anything or hear anything. We started to discuss what had happened, and she felt like he was a very sinister and not good guy. She had felt like we had been in a very dangerous situation, and I felt like he was just getting kicks out of scaring two girls. I mean, he had to have heard us coming around the lake. We weren't being quiet. It was the opposite, because there are black bears up there, and we would always be pretty loud while hiking. Hoping to scare off any bear in the area, really so we wouldn't come up on one. To this day, she still thinks he was sinister, and I still think he was just trying to scare two girls and was getting his kicks out of it. We told our parents, and my dad did not like what he heard at all. 
he did teach us some more up-close defense skills after that day, and forbid us from ever hiking alone or just the two of us again. We did not hike up that trail for several years. Honestly, it freaked my sister out, and I just did not like remembering a time that I was scared in the forest. I didn't know it at the time, but after we had gotten back to the house and told my mom, she had called some neighbors and a few of the men hiked up there the next day to check things out. They did find the deer carcass and some empty hiking packs. They also found a rustic campsite further back in the woods that had been cleared out as well. They found some empty hiking packs as well that day hikers use. It's not that creepy, I guess, but pretty strange nonetheless. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true outdoors horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to punch that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it to fresh new eyes, and that helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Subscribe and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as we upload them almost every single day and all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. Thanks, as always, for supporting the swamp the way you do. I will see you all soon with another creepy episode. Cora Peak Nightmares by Chandler. Hello, Swamp Dweller. I'm from a small town in North Carolina called Cora Peak, and I have lived here almost my entire life. In the nearly 23 years I have been there, I have never experienced something like what I'm about to tell you. So, we live on a farm of about 70 acres, nearly half of which is woods and swampland. We have trails in the woods for four-wheelers and trucks, and we are out in the woods almost daily doing something or the other. I have also hunted those woods with friends and family my entire life. We like to go out to specific parts of the woods, which we call the donut tree, a single tree in a clearing that is probably a good acre or so. We like going out, sitting around it, listening to music, and talking. A lot of the times, we'll also look at the stars. Well, one night at about 1 a.m. during the summer, about five years ago, it was me, my husband, cousin, aunt, and another friend. We decided to go out, listen to the wildlife, and just enjoy the night. We took my husband's older Jeep Cherokee out there, and my husband was driving. Our friend was in the front with him, my cousin and I were in the back seat, and my aunt was in the back of the Jeep. When we got to the donut tree, my husband and friend got out and opened the hatch to let my aunt out of the back. My cousin, my aunt, and I decided to stay in the jeep because for some reason, the three of us just had this odd feeling. This wasn't normal for us because we were always like the ones that were pushing to go outside and stuff like that. So we never really experienced anything out of the ordinary either. My husband and friend walked towards the front of the jeep and they were talking. The three of us in the jeep sat there listening. Usually you hear crickets and frogs and all other sounds of the night. We didn't hear anything. No twigs snapping from the deer or whatever critters may be walking around them. This night, it was entirely hushed. 
The next thing I know, my aunt, who was in the back of the jeep, started screaming and jumped over the back seat into my lap. When my cousin and I turned around to see what was happening, ten feet from the back of the jeep, we saw something horrifying. It was still pretty light out with the moon, so I'm sure of what I saw. It was a black figure, standing behind the jeep, probably between seven feet tall if I had to guess, and it had arms hung low down by its waist, with broad shoulders, and a man-like figure. When it was walking, it never made a sound. The leaves and sticks that it was walking over, it remained silent. It walked out into the clearing where we could see it. The three of us in the jeep started yelling to get the attention of the guys standing outside, but they were already looking at it. My husband was scrambling to get back into the driver's seat to get the hell out of there, and our friend, an army veteran who had never ever been scared over anything, was just standing there frozen. They finally got into the jeep, and we got out of there. This thing just stood behind the jeep staring at us the entire time. The only thing I can describe this thing as was maybe some sort of Bigfoot. We have been out there many times since this incident, and have never seen anything again. But when we go out there at night now, we're all on edge, waiting to see if it'll ever come back. Someone is in the woods. By Not the Real John Cena This story was recently unlocked in my memory within the last week or so, and I think I forced myself to forget it because it was so damn creepy. Flashback to around the year 2010. I was 9 or 10 years old, and it was a lovely summer evening in the Midwest. My buddy, who I'll call Chase for this story, invited me and two other friends in the neighborhood for a sleepover. As I said, we were at an age where adult supervision started slipping and Chase's house was an excellent spot for unsupervised shenanigans. A relatively older couple adopted Chase. I remember his parents being in their late 50s while most of ours were in their 30s or early 40s. His father was paralyzed from the legs down while serving in the Gulf War and required caretakers. His mom was some business executive who wasn't in town too much. In addition, Chase's only sibling was much older and had already moved out for college by this time. So whenever we were hanging out there, there was rarely many eyes on us. We never did anything wrong, mind you, but typical stuff you'd imagine kids at the time would do. Shooting airsoft guns, putting all kinds of crazy seasonings and instant ramen, staying up late playing M-rated games, and all that good stuff. Chase's house was also by far the most prominent in the neighborhood, sitting on top of a hill with a gate, a long driveway, and a huge yard that surrounded the perimeter of the house that backed into a wooded area that eventually led into a state forest. This particular night, Chase thinks it would be a good idea to set up a tent in the woods and camp out for the night. While I don't think we were jumping out of our skins to do this, we all did comply on the condition that we stayed at the edge of the woods to use the bathroom and get snacks quickly from the house. We set the tent up, laid our sleeping bags, grabbed as much junk food as possible, and hung out in the tent for the night. We goofed around for a few hours even after the sun sets until the sugar high dies off and the unhealthy food settles in, and we one by one fall asleep. I was usually the first to crash at sleepovers, and tonight was no different. However, this sleep was brief. I got woken up by someone shaking me out of the pitch black. As my eyes adjust, my friend's concerned face comes into focus. Before I can chew him out for waking me up, he whispers, I sat up carefully until I heard the noise he was talking about. 
noticing another one of my friends was also awake. It was a whistle. Somebody out in the woods was whistling. Each whistle was drawn out and breathy, followed by another equally drawn out note. Even writing about this now still gives me goosebumps. From the sounds of it, it wasn't that close, but not that far either. I'm sure my expression turned to horror as my friends woke the last friend up. We all sat in silence and listened for a minute, trying to determine the direction of the whistling. It could have been coming from the house. Maybe one of Chase's dad's caretakers decided to stay the night, but this didn't usually happen. It's not something that ever happened, actually. It didn't take us very long to realize that the whistling was coming from within the woods, and it certainly was not coming from the house. But it was getting closer to us. With that, we were out of there. We took 15 seconds or less to get our shoes on and sprint to the front porch. We left everything in there. Our snacks, pillows, sleeping bags, DSs, we didn't dare to go back. Under the light of this heavily illuminated driveway, it's like a mini parking lot. We all gained a newfound confidence. At this time, we convinced ourselves we weren't scared, so we got our airsoft guns from the garage and started to basically sit behind the trash and started taking shots into the woods, trying to intimidate or attack whoever was out there. As we were yelling like a bunch of idiots, we couldn't hear anything. But at this point, we, we cooled down. We listened intently and didn't hear anything more. Knowing that we were satisfied and went to sleep on his living room floor after this, after playing a little bit of Xbox, that experience was creepy and lasting. But what was most terrifying was what happened the following day. We all woke up and started talking about how creepy everything that had happened last night was and under the light of day made the walk down to our tent. As we got closer, we noticed something looked off about the tent. It had been completely thrashed. The rain tarp that had primarily been, you know, tied to everything else was yanked off. It looked like one of the corners had caved in like someone broke it. And the poles looked like they were bent in half in several places. Yeah, we had left in a hurry. But I find it hard to believe that four ten-year-olds could do this amount of damage by just running out of the tent. Making our way over to the front of the tent, my face dropped when we saw an extent of all the carnage. Everything inside was trashed. Our snacks had been dumped out and seemingly stomped on. Several of the sleeping bags and pillows were thrown into the woods and cut open. Chase's DS had been snapped in half, and worst of all, one of the sides of the tent had slits all along the side of it, as if some psycho had a stabbing frenzy. All of us shockingly said little. Despite all of the bravados we had boasting about how we were not scared and we were going to beat up whatever was in the woods the previous night, the four of us packed up the tent, gathered the stuff we could, and brought it back to the house. Chase's family probably never would have used that tent again anyways, and I'm sure he just convinced his family to buy them a new one since they were more well off than most of us. After this sleepover, we all naturally separated as friends. It was at the end of summer of fifth grade, Chase went to a private middle school and the rest of us went to a public one, where we were then separated into different cliques. I never thought about this incident again until I ran into one of my other friends there recently when I was back in my hometown visiting family. After catching up, we exchanged numbers, and lately, after seeing a Reddit thread about submitting your own scary stories to a channel called Swamp Dweller, I really had all these memories rushing back to me. I decided that I wanted to share this story, because no matter how many times I think about it, Something still just feels off. Almost became a statistic by Rose Tint. 
Okay, you know this legend, no one dies at Disneyland slash Disney World? Not only does it sound ridiculous, but I'm sure most of you who are into morbid topics are aware that it's a complete farce. When people die on the property, Disney has paramedics jumpstart their hearts so they're not legally dead. Still, they're already brain dead, probably never to return to the land of the living again. Then, they're airlifted off Disney property, and then they stop jumpstarting their heart and put them out of their misery. If you Google it, there's a comprehensive list of every death that has ever happened at either Disney property. And let's say there's been a lot more death at the Florida park. How does this include me? Well, let me tell you. My dad was an employee at Disney World in Florida for most of his life. Sadly, he got fired from Disney due to COVID-19 restrictions. But anyway, during most of my childhood, we got Disney World passes for a lowered price, and they gave me, or at least used to provide me and their employees, with a family discount. So, most of the employees would bring their families frequently. I went to Disney all the time as a child, and I loved it. At least, until the accident. So some kids have traumatic events at Disney, like seeing a guy on a stretcher or getting bullied by a duck dealing with a mean cast member, or even riding Splash Mountain. But me? No, I'm just built differently. So, one late night at the park, we often got to stay after hours because of my dad's employee benefits or because we vacationed there when we had the extra money, we decided to give Big Thunder Mountain a try. The western-themed roller coaster. It was a late night hurrah because it's a lot more fun riding at night. I was seated with my mom. I was probably about a 90 pound kid at the time, and she was a little over 200 pounds. So it means that the lap bar did not cover me at all. It was a good half a foot away from my person. It was just a regular ride with me being flung around more than usual, but I had my hands up, so I didn't notice at first. But near the end of the ride, this sudden dip happened underneath some wood structure. The dip happens, and suddenly gravity, g-force, the bar, and anything that should have kept me down failed. I started to float upwards and my body started to force itself into a standing position as my mom grabbed me by the hips and pulled me back down into the seat physically. I cried for dear life the rest of the ride. I never really got over it, and I haven't really liked roller coasters ever since. On a lesser note, I also gave myself permanent neck and back nerve damage riding Space Mountain on a different visit to the parks. But I barely remember that event other than screaming in pain for 20 minutes and no cast member bothering to help me. I should sue, but knowing their track record, Disney would probably win the court case. What happened to Tex? By Anonymous. In 1970, Robert L. Tex Roberts was an aging and eccentric millionaire living with his slightly older female companion, Jesse Forsyth. On the night of August 15, 1970, the couple disappeared from Robert's Dallas mansion and have never been seen again. That evening, Robert's 85 years old summoned his friend and bodyguard, Al Bergeron, to the home on a matter of utmost importance. When Bergeron arrived, he would discover the usually locked front door ajar and no one home. Although it was not unusual for Roberts to leave the house suddenly, it was almost unheard of for 89-year-old infirmed Forsyth to go with him. After waiting several hours for Roberts to return, Bergeron called the police. 
Two days later, Bergeron received a call from a friend with news of special delivery letter from Tax. The letter stated that attorney Leon C. Horton would manage his affairs during his absence. Horton filed deeds to virtually all of Robert's real property, including the mansion on Spring Valley Road at the Dallas County Courthouse. It was all then sold to a management company owned by Horton. Next, Horton tried to cash Robert's ample holdings of stocks and bonds. No Dallas bank would negotiate the transaction even with a power of attorney. However, one in Amarillo would, and Horton would then convert the securities into cash and deposit it into his own commercial account. Horton then withdrew the funds and sent them, supposedly to tax, according to a prearranged plan. Bergeron, a significant beneficiary in Robert's will, needed to determine whether to believe Horton's assurances that Tex was getting the money. He asked to speak to him personally, but Horton denied this, claiming he protected his client's request for secrecy. Months would go on until in January of 1971, Bergeron received a Christmas card from Tex that was mailed from a small Louisiana town in Homer, near the Arkansas border. Other of Robert's friends would also get similar cards in the mail. All of these cards had typewritten addresses. The little nugget of information would motivate Bergeron to go back and examine Tex's signature on the card. He knew all too well that this was not the right signature. Bergeron would now begin to investigate in earnest. He would uncover another person who sold the property to Horton, an older woman who disappeared in 1969. After consulting a handwriting expert, he would take his findings to attorney Paul Chitwood, who had also done legal work for Roberts in the past. The attorney would examine Bergeron's conclusions and ultimately determine a case of inquiry was necessary. From the start, the question was a mess. Horton was supposedly assaulted in the courthouse parking garage, and his briefcase, which held power of attorney, was stolen. Nevertheless, using existing copies, the handwriting expert testified that Robert's signatures on the documents were not genuine in his opinion. This would lead to the indictment of Horton and notary Artie Odell Reed, who claimed to have witnessed Robert's signatures. A grand jury in Randall County would also indict Horton for converting common stock to his benefit. He'd be convicted of theft by false pretext if sentenced and would get roughly about 10 years in prison. Later, he would be convicted on four counts of forgery in Dallas. Artie Odell Reed, the notary, would vanish for over two years after being released on a $15,000 bond. When he finally surfaced, the Dallas DA's office mysteriously lost interest in the case and agreed to a probated sentence. Other than Horton himself, Odell Reed may be the only person who knows the fate of Jesse Forsyth and Tex Roberts. Never Solo Hike in the South by Anonymous. I've always loved hiking, especially solo hikes where I can lose myself in nature and forget about the rest of the world for some time. So when I had a chance to take a week off of work and explore the rural South, I jumped at the opportunity. I packed my backpack with all the essentials, water, food, a map, a compass, a first aid kit, and a flashlight. I also brought my tent and a sleeping bag in case I wanted to camp out for a night or two. The first few days were actually quite amazing. 
I walked through lush forest and along winding streams, spotting wildlife and enjoying the peacefulness of the woods. But on the fourth day, everything changed. I was walking along a narrow trail and I heard a very uh, odd noise to say the least. It sounded like a mix between a growl and a grunt, coming from somewhere just up ahead on the trail. I froze, my heart pounding in my chest. I've heard stories of bears, wild boars, and all that stuff in the area, but I've never encountered one before. I took a deep breath and tried to stay calm. I slowly reached for my bear spray, but the noise stopped before I could even take it out of my pocket. I waited for a couple of minutes, but nothing seemingly happened. I shrugged it off as my imagination and kept on walking. As I continued down the trail, I noticed that the woods around me seemed... different. The trees were twisted and gnarled, and the leaves on the ground were blackened and dead. The air was thick with an overpowering smell like rotten eggs mixed with something that I couldn't quite place. I tried to shake off this feeling of unease and kept walking, but when I heard the noise again, closer this time, I spun around, but there was absolutely nothing there just the empty trail behind me and the twisted trees ahead. I started to walk a bit faster, my heart starting to pick up in pace. The noise kept getting louder, closer, and more frequent. I felt like something or someone was watching me, following me. But every time I turned around, there was nothing there. Finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. I broke into a run, my backpack bouncing on my back. The noise was now a constant, deafening roar that filled my ears and made my head spin. I felt like I was going insane. And then, just as suddenly as it had started, everything had stopped. I collapsed into the ground, gasping for breath. The woods around me were silent and the air smelled fresh again. I don't know how long I laid there, but when I finally stood up, I knew I had to get the heck out of here. I hiked back as fast as possible to my car, never looking back one time. I didn't stop until I was safely back into civilization. To this day, I don't know what happened to me in those woods, but I'll never forget that feeling of terror and helplessness, alone in the dark woods of the rural south. The St. John's River Monster Chased Me by Donnie B. I was absolutely ecstatic to kayak down the St. John's River in Florida. I had heard that it was one of the state's most beautiful and peaceful kayaking destinations. As I pushed off from the shore and paddled out into the river, I couldn't help but feel a sense of peace and tranquility. The sun was shining, the water was calm, I paddled along enjoying the beautiful scenery and the occasional splash of water from my paddle. But as I went further down the river, things started to feel off. The water began to get choppier, and I could feel something pulling at my kayak from below. At first, I thought it was just the current, but then I felt something brush up against my leg, and it sent shivers down my spine. I looked down in the murky water, trying to see what was beneath me, but I couldn't see anything. The feeling of being watched grew more robust, and I felt like something was circling my kayak. Suddenly, something slammed into the bottom of the kayak, sending me flying into the water. I thrashed around trying to get back into my kayak, but something grabbed me by the leg and pulled me underwater. I, I tried to struggle to get free, but the thing was holding onto me very strongly. It almost felt like tentacles, cold and slimy, wrapping around my body. I grasped for air, but all I could taste was salt water. I finally managed to break free and swim to the surface. 
Gasping for air as I did so, I clambered back into my kayak, shaking and terrified. I didn't know what had just attacked me, but I knew I needed to get out of the water immediately. As I returned to the shore, I couldn't shake the feeling that something was still following me. Every time I looked back, I could see ripples in the water like something was just below the surface. When I finally reached the shore, I stumbled out of my kayak and collapsed onto the sand. I was shaking and covered in water. I couldn't believe what had just happened. As I caught my breath, I looked out into the river, trying to see if I could spot the creature that had attacked me, but there was seemingly nothing there. The river was calm and peaceful like nothing had ever happened. I felt like I was going crazy, like maybe I had just imagined the entire thing. But as I returned to my car, I noticed something strange. The trees around me were all dead. Their leaves were brown and withered. It was like they had been sucked dry of life, and there was a strange smell in the air, like rotting fish and seaweed. I tried to shake off the dread creeping up, but I couldn't. I knew that something was just wrong, that something was lurking in the water. That night, I couldn't sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I could feel something cold and slimy wrapping around my legs, pulling me under the water. I kept thinking about the dead trees and that strange smell, wondering if they were connected to the creature that had attacked me. The next day, I decided to try to get some research in. I searched the internet up and down for information about strange creatures in the St. John's River, and that's when I found it. There were rumors of an animal that lived in the depth of the river, a beast that had been there for centuries. Some called it the River Devil, while others called it the Water Hag. It was said to be a shapeless being, slimy, with tentacles that it used to drag its prey under the water. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It sounded like something straight out of a horror movie. But the more I read, the more convinced I became that the creature was real. And then I found something out even more disturbing. There had been reports of missing kayakers in the area, and I think I know why. Tennessee Creepiness by Number Economy 8518. I was in my last year before retiring from the Army and was going through a pretty bad divorce. My soon-to-be ex returned to Texas with my two girls, and I planned to move closer to them once my retirement was official. I rented a small, two-bedroom apartment in Tennessee in a small town called Indian Mound. Indian Mound was wet. One night, I came home around 1 in the morning from a concert in Nashville. It was early spring, and it was somewhat foggy out. The driveway dipped down, and the house was about an eighth mile from the road. As I pulled in, I saw a huge black dog standing in the front yard, and it looked like a black lab or a lab mixed breed. It stood with its head up and its tail straight up. It was fixated on me. I slowly pulled my car up, unsure of what to do next. When it turned and ran into the swamp, I didn't think much of it and went inside. Over the following few months, things started happening at night. I would always wake up around 3 or so in the morning, thinking I heard voices outside my window. And sometimes it sounded like someone or a couple of people were whispering to each other, but I couldn't quite understand what they were saying. Sometimes, I would hear footsteps and movement outside. I thought it would maybe a deer or some sort of dog, or perhaps even the dog I saw earlier. But when I looked out, I saw absolutely nothing. This type of stuff continued for months, 
One night, I woke up to a noise and saw it was 2.57. A bright white light shone through the porch glass doors. I ran out into the kitchen and looked through the small sink window and it looked like someone was out in the swamp shining a spotlight. It was one of those high-powered lights used in search and rescue. It was blinding and lit up the entire kitchen. I opened the back doors and ran onto the porch. I was yelling that I was calling the cops and to get out of here. The light suddenly went out and I heard someone moving away from the house through the swamp. The cops eventually came out, took a report, and told me to keep my doors locked and to call if anyone else came around or if anything else happened. I was hypervigilant from that day on and sometimes I still am. I checked behind me when I was coming and going and always slept with the shades drawn and doors locked. The footsteps around the house continued and some nights I thought I could hear a dog panting outside my window. Although I never found tracks or any signs of an animal in the morning. Things eventually did die down after a while and I was about three months away from the end of my lease. I woke up around three in the morning, scared out of my mind. Not really knowing why, honestly. I was sleeping fairly well and heard a woman calling my name in my dream out of nowhere. I opened my eyes and realized it was just a nightmare when I heard the voice call my name again, clear as day. I shot up out of my bed and turned on the lights. I checked in the closet and under the bed in every which way, every nook and cranny of the house. I opened the bedroom door and listened out in the hallway. I couldn't hear anything and was about to cut the light and return to bed when someone started pounding on my front door. I nearly jumped out of my skin. It was like someone was bashing the door with a sledgehammer. I yelled out that I had a gun and to get the hell off my property. I said I would call the cops and I'll blow your freaking head off before they get here. The pounding stopped. Cops came out again and took another report, but there was no visible damage to the door or footprints around the property. It all just stopped after that. I did actually buy a 9mm, but the rest of my time renting there was actually very peaceful. I'm back in Texas now, in an apartment complex in the suburbs, but I really don't mind. The backwoods of Tennessee were a creepy place. These occurrences take place in my new home in South Carolina. For some backstory, it was the year 2006 when I moved into my current home. I used to be an avid outdoorsman. I used to, anyway. Yesterday, while out on one of my daily hikes during the evening, I found an old, rotting note. After reading this note, I highly doubt I'll be back to those woods for a long while. The note read, I was out with a few friends for a get-together for a friend of mine. He was going to leave for college in a week, so everyone wanted him to go out with a bang. We were having this get-together in some private property that one of my friends, my few friends were Brandon, Kyle, Alfred, and myself, we used this property to drive around the ATVs and dirt bikes we owned. We drank for a while quite carelessly. Eventually, one of us had the idiotic idea to ride our ATVs around to make the effects of being heavily intoxicated even more extreme. I sluggishly went along. Someone had to be able to watch and make sure nothing happened to them, but it had to be me. I had drunk the second least to Brandon. I was basically completely sober. As we drove further, a sound that I could not describe to this day began to become more prevalent as we went further into the woods. 
The sound became so overpowering at one point that it covered up the loud noise of our bikes. Eventually, we were all on the ground screaming and covering our ears in pain and torment. No matter which direction we ran, even out of the woods, the sound would still grow louder. At this point, the sound became clear to me that it was most likely a scream. Then I saw something that I will never forget. I saw these, what I can only describe as animals. They looked like pale, light gray humanoid type creatures. They had to have stood at least four feet at the shoulder. Their heads had borne the charges of dogs, but the teeth were tiny, blood red knives. The screaming noise had ceased to stop. Then, there was one creature that stood out from the other eight. This one stood about six feet tall at the shoulder. He had a much more muscular build than the others who looked malnourished. His mouth was wide open, still bearing those sharp, long, needle-like teeth. But the biggest one, which I supposed was the leader, made a different noise. I could only describe this noise as a clicking noise. It may be necessary to mention that I have the most powerful build of all four of us. After my friend had been dragged away so inhumanly fast, I, I couldn't run that fast if my life depended on it, but at this point it did. But while my friends and I were being dragged away, I realized something. The screaming had stopped. After about two or three miles, there was a pit of bones from different animals, but the most common were human bones. The stench was so nerve-wracking that I eventually passed out. When I woke up, my friends were already dead. After seeing the bodies of my friends being eaten by the creatures, I will never be the same. The screaming stopped when the animals had something in their mouths. The screaming almost drove me insane. I resorted to feeding the creatures all my family, friends, and pets. All the people I know are gone. My family, friends, and even my pets are gone. I think the police are beginning to understand what is going on now. They have been showing up at my house more and more lately. The screaming won't stop. I have nothing to feed them except for myself. This is my suicide letter before I jump into the place where I keep the creatures away from all society. Anyone who finds this note, please drop the note now and run. I don't want anyone else to suffer my fate. Now, for whatever reason, I believe that this note is truly genuine more and more by day. A strange screaming noise has been coming closer to my home every night that I keep hearing. I, I don't know how much longer I'll be able to live here. Every night they just get a little bit closer, and a little bit closer. With my trusty revolver at my side tonight, I will most likely not be able to sleep. The sounds that I hear at night freak me out so bad that I can't sleep, and I have to somehow find some sort of prescription drug to make it work. I could hear a scratching noise at my door recently. I'm hoping that things are going to improve before I get out of here, or hopefully at least hold off until I move. I plan to move back in with my parents in a few days' time. Wish me luck, because I sure as hell am going to need it. Like I said, when I first found that note, I thought it was just some sort of short scary story, maybe something that somebody had put there to scare people. But after I'm starting to experience these things myself, this story is starting to seem a little bit more real. The Japan Stalker by Anonymous I'm a 25-year-old woman, and I've been living in Japan for a couple of years now. It's a beautiful country, truly, 
every bit as fascinating and alien as I imagine. But I have one major complaint. In rural areas where foreigners are a rarity, Japanese men can become slightly obsessive regarding foreign girls. Particularly fair-haired, blue-eyed girls like me. I've dealt with quite a few situations where I was way beyond uncomfortable. Even one or two where I feared I might be abducted or even worse. One such encounter occurred a few years back when I was in the third year of my university course. The following was a very brief encounter, but a terrifying one nonetheless. I was studying abroad at a school in Saitama, a suburb of Tokyo only 15 miles away from the capital city center. I was meeting many new people, making many new friends, practicing Japanese, and generally having the time of my life. One day after classes were finished, my friends invited me to shop at a local supermarket to get things for a nabe party. Nabe is a potluck dinner for those who don't know. You get some fresh vegetables and cuts of meat, then put it in a big pot on a little gas burner before everyone gathers and eats together. It's a huge part of traditional Japanese culture and a tremendous socializing thing. I was over the moon that they invited me. I was usually left out of these things at first because I was an outsider, whereas they had known each other since their freshman year. Though we had been singing together over the past few months, they had grown to be like family to me. Each like an overprotective big brother, especially a guy named Shinji. He was short and a bit on the heavy side, but he was highly charismatic. Whenever he saw me fumbling around nervous or confused, he'd quickly appear by my side and throw a heavy arm around my shoulder, asking, What's the problem, Jamie? We all went to our friend's house for the party and drank and talked until pretty late. I checked my phone at one point to discover that it was already 4 in the morning and my battery was dying. The guys had already decided they would sleep for a few hours until the train started back up, but I was only about a 30-minute walk away from my shared apartment. I announced that I was leaving and started packing my stuff up. Sinji offered to walk me home, but I politely declined the offer. It would be sunrise soon, it wasn't all that far, and I would definitely make it to the station safely, right? Only to see a single car parked outside with a man I didn't recognize leaning up against it. He was staring at me. He was much older than me, in his mid-thirties or even early forties. His head turned watching me as I approached the station. I began picking up my pace a little crossly to the other side of the street to avoid him as best as possible, but I heard the car door slam and the engine start up. Headlights illuminated me, and he turned to drive alongside where I was walking. His window rolled down. Good morning, Gaijin, he said in Japanese. Gaijin means foreigner. You're walking alone, huh? No, I'm going to be meeting with some friends soon, I reply politely. My word, you speak excellent Japanese. Where are you going? I started walking faster, pretending not to hear his last question. You're wonderful. Can I get your phone number? He asked. I have a boyfriend. It was a lie, but I didn't know what else to say. He proceeded to drive, and I figured he had given up. But then he suddenly pulled his car over up ahead just before I could get away, opened the driver's door and got out. Let's go home together. He repeated a little more vehemently, taking a few steps toward me on the sidewalk. I panicked, immediately sprinting into a nearby park. There were only a handful of entrances and exits, all of which a car could not enter thanks to the somewhat well-placed ballards. I pulled out my phone and immediately called Sinji. Just my luck though, he didn't answer. 
He was probably passed out, still drunk on weak Japanese beer. I tried the rest of my group, and no one was answering. I looked out the next exit just in time to see the car crawl by slowly. He was still searching for me. Trembling in fear, I tried to unsuccessfully reach the guys over and over again. Just as I was about to cry, my phone lit up dimly with a call from Sinji. What's the problem, Jamie? He said jokingly. I'd never been so glad to hear those words. In a flurry of comments, I explained to him that I was potentially in serious trouble. Though he didn't say a word the entire time, I could practically hear the smile leave his face. In a tone so severe it was almost weird to hear it coming from him, he told me to stay where I was and that he was on the way. But I was already a 20 minute walk away and I wasn't sure I had 20 minutes before this guy parked his car and came to look for me on foot. I looked behind me again just in time to see him drive by the exit slowly, looking through. I don't have time. I'm going to make a break for it the next chance I get, I explained. No, he said. Wait for me. I'll be there as soon as I can. I'll run. But Sinji wasn't a runner by uh, any stretch of the imagination. There was no way he could get there any faster than I could. He started to say something more, but my phone suddenly went dark. My phone battery had finally died. There was no turning back now. I waited a couple of seconds and he was right on schedule. He crawled by the exit, then stopped, waiting for his moment to pounce. My heart was pounding so hard I could hear it thumping in my chest. The sun was beginning to come up now and he had a better view of me. It was now or never. He slowly crept forward. I moved out of sight of my hiding spot and moved toward the exit. I poked my head out and saw him turn the corner. I sprinted toward my house and didn't look back. He may have seen me, and I was too fast to follow or something, but I didn't see the guy again. I immediately put my phone in the charger, called the guys back to let them know I was okay, but Shinji never let me walk home again after that. The Miyazawa Tragedy by Anonymous In the year 2000, on the morning of New Year's Eve, Japanese grandmother Asahi Gaino traveled over to her daughter's house in the Setagaya ward of western Tokyo to celebrate the coming of the new year. Unlike many other East Asian cultures, the official Japanese New Year has been observed according to the Gregorian calendar on January 1st of each year, as has been tradition since the year 1873. Asahi looked forward to these New Year visits, you know, they were great for them, which usually involved her grandchildren partaking in these Japanese traditions of New Year's kite flying known as before the family sat down together to watch the final of the Emperor's Cup, the National Association Football Elimination Tournament. She had called ahead to confirm the visit, but was surprised that her calls couldn't be patched through. This was highly unusual. Her daughter's family was financially stable and always paid their phone bill on time. So naturally, she became suspicious and headed over to the house a few hours earlier than planned. Upon entering the residence, Asahi noticed that it was hushed. She called out to her family, but they were still waiting for a reply from them. There were signs of activity in the kitchen and around the family computer. Someone had not only eaten there recently, but had also used the computer to surf the internet. But Asahi didn't start to worry until she saw that someone had wrenched the phone line from the wall socket, so it was broken off entirely. Feelings of dread began to build in her as she climbed the first floor stairs and peered into the family bedrooms. 
and when she laid her eyes on the scenes that greeted her, she unleashed a blood-curdling scream so loud that the occupants of neighboring houses heard and quickly called the police. Her family had been murdered. A grisly scene greeted the police officers that rushed to the residence. There, they discovered the corpses of 44-year-old Makio Miyazawa, his 41-year-old wife, Yasuko, and their children, Nina and Ray, who were eight and six respectively. Three of the corpses were soaked with blood except Ray's who had been strangled in his sleep. Police quickly determined that whoever had slain the family had gained access to the house at some time around 11.30 p.m. the previous evening. They had climbed a tree to the rear of the house before carefully removing a window screen, after which they had free access to the bedroom of the sleeping Ray. Despite succumbing to the asphyxiation inflicted by the killer, Ray seems to have raised up enough of an alarm for his father, Mikio, to rush up the stairs to confront his son's murderer. Shocked and enraged by the horrifying sight that greeted him, Mikio set upon the killer in a vengeful rage and managed to injure his son's attacker before losing his balance. The killer then gained the upper hand and tried to stab Mikio in the head with a sashimi knife, a blade used to prepare sushi. Mikio was spiked in the head with such force that part of the blade snapped off inside of his skull, and the killer was forced to slay the family's females with a broken knife, still soaked in their father's blood. In a country where murder rate is relatively low, news of the murder shocked the Japanese public and caused national outrage. So much so that Takeshi Tushida the chief of the Saiho police station was placed in charge of all investigations into the murders and remained in place until his retirement. The study that it followed was one of the largest ever taken in the history of Japanese law enforcement. It involved almost a quarter of a million investigating officers who collected and filed over 12,000 pieces of evidence. The killer's behavior was brutal, ruthless, and horrifying, but it was his apparent actions following the murder that made the police so confused. Instead of fleeing the scene, the killer seemingly spent the next eight hours or simply hanging around the Miyazawa family's home. After treating their injuries using medical supplies found in the family's bathroom, the killer helped themselves to some barley tea, fresh melon, and some ice cream from the kitchen's freezer unit then, after using the house's toilet to relieve themselves, the killer used the family's computer for several hours before actually taking a nap on the living room couch before seeing themselves out. Analysis of the family's computer revealed it had connected to the internet at 1am shortly after the family was murdered and the killer had eaten. It had also connected to the internet around 10am the same morning meaning Asahi Gaino had arrived at the house maybe only an hour after the killer had departed. One thing was clear before any severe investigation had taken place though. The police were dealing with a highly dangerous psychopath who was not only so detached from their crimes that they could stomach food in the immediate aftermath, but so callous that they could take a nap after having murdered two children and their parents. The subsequent police investigation revealed several oddly specific things about the family's killer. Physically, the killer was estimated to be around 170 centimeters tall and of a slender, athletic build, 
police also deduced that the killer was 15 to 35 years old at the time of the incident due to the physical strength required to scale the tree at the back of the Miyazawa's house. After analyzing fecal matter taken from the Miyazawa's bathroom that belonged to the killer, police determined that they had eaten string beans and sesame seeds the previous day. They also discovered that the killer had left their blood-stained clothes in the father's bedroom after changing into some of the clean clothes he took from them, probably to avoid raising suspicion as he escaped the scene. Analyzing the killer's sweater, they not only learned that it had been bought from a store in the Kanagawa prefecture, but that only 130 of that particular item were ever made, and it was a pretty exclusive piece of clothing and didn't come cheap. Therefore, the killer must have been employed at a farewell-paying job and or at least had an interest in fashion. But perhaps the most exciting detail gleaned from the investigation was that trace amounts of sand were found inside the hip bag of the killer left abandoned at the scene. These were sent to a laboratory for analysis where forensic scientists concluded that they had come from the Nevada desert, specifically the area around Edwards Air Force Base in specifically the area around Edwards Air Force Base in California. This fueled speculation that the murderer was either an American serviceman or had at least visited the site during the previous few years. Analysis of the killer's DNA and fingerprints also fueled speculation that a foreigner committed the murder. Neither the DNA nor the fingerprints matched any of the records of Tokyo police, which could have simply meant the killer had no previous criminal description. However, analysis of the type A blood found at the scene revealed that the killer was male. It indicated that the ancestry was that of a southern European country that bordered the Mediterranean or the Adriatic Seas. This discovery led the Tokyo Metropolitan Police to seek help from the International Criminal Police Organization, as it was possible that the killer was no longer present in Japan and had escaped the country following the brutal murders. This would explain why, after such a thorough and widespread investigation, no single person was ever charged with the murders. In 2019, it was reported that nearly 35 officers were still assigned to the case, hoping to one day finally solve some of the most widely publicized murders in Japanese history. And every year since the murders, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department makes an annual pilgrimage to the house for the memorial ceremonies to commemorate the crime and ask forgiveness that they have failed to discover the killer's identity and bring them to justice. We can only hope that one day the murderer is caught and punished for the horrific crimes they committed. But with every year that goes by, this outcome seems less and less likely. I found something disturbing in Akigahara Forest by Paige Turner. Hello Swamp Dweller. It's strange to finally write this after months of meticulously crafting the perfect letter with which to grab your attention, but sadly those hours were in vain. It's impossible to express the entirety of what happened without including some rather embarrassing details, but I can't keep this to myself any longer. Hopefully, you can see past my mistakes and consider reading this to your viewers. There is no defense for my intentions, but I would like to conclude this preface by saying that I am a different person now. My name is Parker, and I'm a 21-year-old manic depressive 
bipolar college dropout. I'm also a snob and an all-around asshole. This isn't a cry for help, it's an explanation. You see, I've been coming to the swamp since 2018. It's one of a few pleasures in my pathetic life. Any tale where someone suffers more than myself is a treat. But here, I don't know, there's something special about the atmosphere. I've nearly convinced myself I'm visiting a real place. Did I cross a line from a loyal fan to obsessive psycho? Probably, but listen to my whole story before passing judgment. Eventually, listening wasn't enough anymore. I wanted to keep the show going daily, to hear my words shared with everyone here in the swamp. The problem, I was a boring nobody, and apparently so was my family. There wasn't a single haunting or stalker among us. Finally, I decided to create a work of fiction. But they were dull, and even if you read them, they'd be immediately forgotten. No, if I was going to lie, it was going to be something memorable. After trashing a dozen or more drafts, the entire world stopped. My sister died, and I experienced real pain. The previous depressions were nothing compared to the new torments of daily life. Leslie was walking to her car after work when some shitbag just grabbed her. But that's not the story I'm here to tell. It's only the catalyst. I've always wanted to die. Not in a I-can't-take-it-anymore-dramatic way, in a this-is-pointless-and-I-don't-want-a-passive type of way. After Leslie, it became the bad kind. Wanting justice kept me going at first, but when the shitbag went down shooting, that was gone too. There's a calmness that comes with the decision to die. The pain finally stops because it doesn't matter anymore. It felt like my mind was clear for the first time, and I understood exactly what I wanted to do. Opening a new dock, my fingers danced over the keys as words practically wrote themselves. In minutes, three perfect paragraphs introduced myself as an adventurous hiking enthusiast. I explained my love for this channel and my lifelong desire to visit Akigahara, Japan's suicide forest. It was far from finished, but a beautiful beginning. Next, I bought a plane ticket, a round trip to support my claims. I got a passport and packed my bags. The plan was nearly flawless. I would write of my daring adventures, and when the audience was captivated with my unbelievable discoveries, I would deliver the clincher. The returning tomorrow will update soon. Of course, that was never going to happen. Later, when my body was discovered, well, you get the idea. There was a chance details about my true personality would surface, but most people want the mystery. They'll overlook a few discrepancies in the story if it's good enough, and I thought mine was. I researched the area to ensure no claims contradicted the legends too much and found the subject fascinating. In 2003, a record-breaking 105 bodies were discovered. In 2010, over 200 suicide attempts were made. Due to the drastic increases, they won't release the numbers anymore. In the year 864, Mount Fuji erupted, and where the lava flowed, Akigahara eventually grew. Halfway up the mountain, one can see the forest from high above the treetops. The breathtaking view is the reason it was named Yukai, or Sea of Trees. Unfortunately, the surrounding villages were poor and starving. It was common for families to abandon their elderly in the woods and call it mercy. 
Many of them committed suicide rather than face weeks of starvation and exposure. This brings us to the Onyo, a vengeful spirit capable of causing physical harm. Many claim these malevolent beings are responsible for most, if not all, of the forest deaths and disappearances. Even experienced hikers tend to lose their way. Now, the public trail ends with no trespassing notices and warning signs. Those who are determined to die simply venture forth and do it. If they're unsure, they tie a ribbon in the trees to guide their possible return. Sometimes, locals volunteer to perform suicide checks and know what it means to find one of those trails. In case you're wondering, I took camping gear, but only to support future claims. We can skip the swank hotel, weird toilets, and actual trauma of public transportation. I'd rather jump to where fantasy and reality diverged. Once I learned what it was like to travel in a crowded city, I knew multiple trips were out of the question. Instead, I took everything on the first day. Finding reception at the bottom of the mountain seemed preferable to another round trip. Plus, it fit my narrative better. I was just camping, but things were so scary I came down to send this. At least, that's what I told myself. It wouldn't matter why I went back afterwards. People always make dumb decisions in those situations. Let everyone speculate I forgot something, or maybe I was forced. The important thing was to steer them away from suicide. I don't care what went in its place. Onyo, Yakuza, aliens, pick your poison. From the moment I arrived, things were more difficult than anticipated. The insects were drawn to me like they smelled a foreign delicacy in my blood, and the weight of my gear increased with every step. When the trail split in two, I stopped for a much-needed break. The signposts were in Japanese, but a passing elderly couple speak English well enough to help. They exchanged worried glances after noticing my tent. I insisted my interest only lay in camping, but it was doubtful that they believed me. I'm still in awe of the forest's beauty. It's amazing what nature can do when the trees aren't cut every 10 to 20 years. If you leave the trail, even before the forbidden zone, it's practically guaranteed you'll get lost. I stopped for a few more breaks along the way and reached the end in roughly two hours. A small barrier with numerous warnings offered no challenge in preventing my entry, but that's what marks the point of no return for so many. My first glimpse revealed tattered ribbons of all colors and sizes blowing in the breeze. I worried my line would be too easily seen if it started within view of the trail but then noticed a uniquely shaped tree in the distance. Halfway there, a blue, uncut ribbon could be seen stretching into the dense foliage ahead. It inspired a combination of fear, curiosity, and regret. Turning back, I found a new landmark to the right. When sure no one was nearby, I started my own red lifeline. It was a solid hour before I found a suitable place for the tent. It was the lightest available, but as the clouds gathered overhead, the choice felt regrettable. Not checking the weather is a perfect example of the basic things I overlook in laziness. I set up between two huge trees and hoped the heavy rocks above me would help against the wind. There was nothing to do against flooding except hope it didn't happen. It wasn't until resting inside that I heard the sporadic patter of raindrops and realized the trees blocked most of it. Luckily. It never rained hard enough to be more than a nuisance, but the soothing sounds lulled me to sleep. Nightmares are a common theme in the forest legend, 
but that's true for most haunted places. Regardless, bad dreams are ineffective threats against those of us intimately familiar with night terrors, as long as we realize we're sleeping. One moment, I was resting comfortably. The next, footsteps were crunching in the distance. I rose to look outside, fully expecting a bear or a deer. My ears couldn't discern how many legs it walked on, just that it was heavy. The sound stopped instantly when I unzipped the flap. Taking a few cautious steps forward, I scanned my surroundings. It was then that I realized Akigahara was a serial killer's paradise, but it was too late for new worries. Besides, I was there to die. If someone wanted to help, why complain? I turned and felt urine stream down my leg. Standing not five feet behind my tent was the elderly couple from before. Except now, they look like zombies. They weren't ghostly apparitions, but solid bodies. Their faces were chalk white and peeling. The woman's neck had jagged red slashes, and her husband was missing a portion of his skull. With a sickly rotten smile, the man, in perfect English, asked, Are you sure you're only here to camp? Is there anything you'd like to talk about? We're wonderful listeners. As he spoke, they advanced from both sides, and I stumbled backwards. Oh, don't be frightened, dear, his wife added. We only want to help. We have a grandson your age, or we did, until he left us to rot. The sorry, selfish bastard. Her voice became deeper with every word until it no longer resembled a woman's. I retreated faster and soon fell flat onto my back. Twisted roots and rocks jabbed painfully into my skin, but there was no time to stop for the stars dancing in my vision. The couple's approach grew louder with each step, and their cold iron grips could come at any second. I flailed, desperately propelling myself backwards, but my clothes snagged in several places. Finally, when I thought my heart would fail from pure terror, I jolted awake with a loud clap of thunder. Outside in the cool, fresh air, I noticed my clothes were soaked in sweat. Once changed, I started a fire and wondered at the possibility of staying awake for the rest of my life. Having one of those dreams at night was something to avoid. Phantom pain lingered from the imaginary fall. But as a lifelong hypochondriac, I have learned to ignore most aches and ailments. In a blatant act of rebellion, my brain showed me awful things waiting in the forest, creeping closer by the minute. I didn't care about the story anymore. I was trapped. If I fled in the dark, every branch would be fingers, every animal would be demons, and every cold breeze could be the reaper's breath. Shadows darted about in the corner of my eye, but I was paralyzed. The trance was only broken when a figure suddenly lunged into the clearing. I turned my head in time to catch a glimpse of a pale, angry woman before she vanished. Taking advantage of my regained mobility, I dove into the tent. I felt a cold certainty. That's what they wanted, but my anxiety grew in tandem with the darkness. Staying outside was not an option. I felt naked and exposed. Countless eyes were watching, waiting. But for what? The whispers hinted suicide, but I wasn't ready to admit I heard them yet. Things were almost calm during the first hour. Writing seemed like a good distraction, but it was difficult to focus. It wasn't until accidentally dozing that I heard real footsteps. Several. The firelight cast tall, exaggerated shadows onto the tent, and they grew taller with every step. There were at least six, maybe even more. 
I thought they would force their way inside, but they circled me like vultures. Round and round they went, slowly, never stopping or talking, but occasionally they showed me things. I could hear, smell, and feel everything. Most husbands granted their wives quick, painless deaths before committing suicide, but sometimes they tried to survive out there. Either way, death always came, and the men were always furious when it did. Their rage and hate poured into the land, strengthened its curse with every fresh infusion of fury. What's interesting is how the same children who left them on the mountain were in turn abandoned by their own offspring years later. The Onyo never forgot, and their sons were greeted accordingly. The practice of abandoning the weak may have ended, but its victims remain and they hate us, all of us. The visions continued until all meaning of time was lost. My head ached and my eyes grew heavier with each passing minute. I had drifted off for only a moment when the sound of tearing fabric startled me. Inches away from my ear a long black fingernail poked through a small hole, and I screamed in surprise. The finger was immediately replaced by a glazed blue eye. Gripped by panic I leapt away from the tear, covered it with my pack, and sobbed as the circling footsteps resumed. I stayed that way until dawn when all fell gloriously silent. There were no retreating footsteps into the forest. They vanished mid-stride as if never there. I opened the flap wide enough for a peek but saw nothing. The gray light of the morning filled me with renewed determination. It was imperative to finish my business before sunset, but I was no longer sure what that entailed. Not wanting to trust any decision made under duress, I reassessed my situation from the beginning. The real doubts began with my letter to you, Mr. Dweller. It was nothing compared to the nightmare of reality. After much soul-searching, the file went into the trash bin where it belonged. When I decided to visit Akigahara, no part of me expected to witness any form of supernatural activity. Now that I had, I would practically be a criminal not to share it with the swamp, right? Admitting I might want to live was too scary. That would mean returning to my miserable existence of everyday life. But it was easier to postpone the suicide rather than cancel. But my priority was getting the hell out of that forest. My gear was packed in 10 minutes, and leaving the tent behind was an easy decision. No matter how long I lived, there would be no more camping in my future. Following my red line back to its starting point, I remembered the stranger's blue ribbon. My intention was to take a few pictures for the story but then it was clearly older than I had first assumed. The chances of finding a corpse at the other end were extremely high. Seeing a dead body would bother me half as much as a living person would, to be honest. I could be like the YouTubers and claim it was to give closure to a grieving family, or that it was the right thing to do, but I was chasing a story. After 20 minutes, the sound of rushing water alerted me to a stream beyond the cliffside, and the terrain was much better for walking. The forest beauty made it easier to forget about the previous night's terror and the morbidity of the current objective. Lost in another fantasy, I wandered past the ribbon and into an old campsite. A gray tent that was flattened beneath a large tree limb and personal effects were scattered throughout the area. Initially I worried a person was inside that tent when it was crushed, but that wasn't the case. After a brief inspection of the belongings I noticed a yellow ribbon leading further into the woods. The dead woman was at the end of a much shorter hike. She'd been there long enough for the rope to eat through her decomposing neck. 
The noose still hung from the tree, but her head and body lay separately on the ground. Taking a picture was horrible, but no one would believe me without evidence. Her icy dead stare gave me chills. I couldn't look directly at her, only through the camera. With my finger over the button, I took a few more steps and waited for the auto-zoom. And when the shot came into focus, I screamed hard and fell on my ass. The woman's face was back to normal, her lips slightly parted, in a way that she could be described as smiling. Yet, when the picture came into focus, that's exactly what she was doing. Her terrifying grin stretched ear to ear, her lips were blood red and her eyes were suddenly aware and full of hatred. I couldn't take my eyes off her, or she might make that face again, and I desperately needed that picture. After several minutes spent blindly running my hands over the ground, I finally found it. The sad and broken remains of my phone only displayed the soft glow of nothingness. We cast forward past my tantrum. Without a phone, there was no way to judge time, but I knew it was early enough to be safely locked in my hotel room before nightfall. When retracing my steps through the ruined campsite, I heard a strange, gargled cry like someone was drowning, and instinctively ran towards the sound. Looking down from the cliff's edge, I froze at the sight below. It wasn't water flowing through the stream, but blood and bone. Skulls littered the banks, and spines stretched far beyond my sight. My head began to spin, and I sank to my knees knowing another vision would soon assault my senses. Countless people jumped from that very spot, and countless more were all pushed. I watched them in an endless loop. So many people, just like me, were surrounded by a horde of ghoulish figures taunting them and poking them until they fell. Death was not always instant. Some only suffered broken bones. Those begged for help until their heads sank below the surface. They were the same gargled cries which led me in the first place. I only returned to my senses when leaning forward, hovering at the tripping point. It was my own doing, but not my subconscious. I only returned to my senses when leaning forward, hovering at the tipping point. It was my own doing, but not my conscious doing. It required all my willpower to carefully lean back and avoid panicked movements. When there was a comfortable amount of distance between myself and the cliff, thunder boomed overhead and the sky was quickly growing dark. That's when I remembered my laptop. It had a clock, but with a little luck, my phone would appear on the Wi-Fi options. At first, I assumed it must be on American time, because why else would it say 5.15pm? The battery was over half full, but the power died when I opened the Wi-Fi settings. When pressing the power button, the light blinked and died. If it was almost 6pm, that meant I missed the sun's entire journey across the sky while I was... what? What could account for so much time? I had done nothing but walk. The answer hit me, and I almost lost a little food in my stomach. It hadn't felt long at the river, but my muscles were weirdly stiff when I returned to my senses, as if confirming my worst fear. The bottom of the sun dipped just behind the mountain's back and the long shadow fell across the land. That's when the whispers returned but it was hard to distinguish the outside voices from my own while crying in the dirt. Kill yourself now. Forget the story. You can't spend another night out here. No matter who said it, these words were true, and I couldn't help but agree with them. After repacking the computer and finding my flashlight, panic 
really consumed me. I ran without looking back. The headless woman would be there. There's no way to prove it, but she would. A painful stitch in my side soon forced me to stop. The flashlight definitely would not have enough battery to last all night, but I did not turn it on until it was pitch black. It should have enough power to make it to the public trail at least. The plan was to walk until the light dimmed, then start a fire next to the path. If nothing else, having a plan granted me several minutes of reassurance. I genuinely saw myself making it out of there and being a better person for it. Like one of those life-changing experiences you see in a movie where the main character is entirely a different person at the end. All I needed to do was walk back to the Blue Ribbon. Even I couldn't get lost in that short space between it and the public trail. The ribbon was gone. I followed it when fleeing the river, but it wasn't there anymore. As if answering my screams of frustration, a violent wind blew and a wall of dirt hit my skin like a thousand needles. Underneath the howling wind and crunching leaves there was another sound. Whispers, floating to my ears off the cold breeze. They were secrets and knowledge, questions and answers, promises and threats, all for my ears alone. When the trees were calm once again I opened my eyes in time to watch the last blue tatters fall to the ground. Instead of being consumed by terror, I felt relieved. The whispers were pleased, and so was I, but immediately upon that realization was the now familiar feeling of waking from a trance. Those feelings hadn't been my own, and the appropriate response of panic began in earnest. Thinking the trail must be close, I used the flashlight and kept moving in the same direction. Fun fact, walking in a straight line is impossible without a guide. You'll always make a circle. Feel free to Google it. I didn't believe it either, but it was an interesting read. I pointed the flashlight into the cluster of trees and took three deep breaths before proceeding. The light bounced with my unsteady movements and the whispers begged me to look for their faces, to follow them home. But if they were trying to lure me right, I needed to go left, and that's when the old couple returned. The moment the light fell on their rotting faces I came to an abrupt halt, and they laughed at my fear. You'll think he'll wet his pants again? The man asked his wife. Oh hush, that doesn't count. That was a dream, wasn't it? The woman teased. No telling. He was soaked clean through afterwards. Who knows what fluids came out of where? The husband answered, and they both laughed. My eyes only glanced away for a second, and my head never moved an inch. Yet, they halved the distance between us. Despite every conscious effort to avoid it, I yelped and fell once again. Standing no more than five feet away, they cackled maniacally while the whispers in my head turned to screams. There's only one way to end it, they warned. Consumed by panic, I struggled to my feet and ran around them while hopefully staying on course. When their wild, mocking laughter was gone, I slowed to catch my breath. Turning the flashlight off at that moment was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but every second of power that that battery could have was precious. In the dark, my breaths were loud and jagged. It felt like the sound would carry on for miles. As my heart began to slow, a soft whisper spoke into my ear. So closely I felt breath on my neck. Come play with me. It was a child's voice that time, and before a chill ran down the length of my spine, small fingers brushed the tips of my own. I frantically fumbled with the flashlight, nearly dropping it before finding the switch. It was only on for a brief instant and immediately began to dim. 
As the beams slowly faded, faces began to appear between the trees watching and smiling. A whimper escaped my lips as I banged the flashlight against my palm, causing it to flare back to life for short spurts, only to immediately dim again. The pale faces in the forest blinked in and out of existence with the light, appearing closer with every flash, and the whispers promised, soon, soon. My entire system shut down. I collapsed in between loud, racking sobs. I apologized for every horrible thing I had done to the spirits in life or after. Somewhere in the corner of my desperate brain, I remembered the only paragraph involving how to appease an Onyo. They want justice, for many reasons. That wasn't feasible here, not in the traditional sense, but I promised to share their story with as many others as possible. Then I repeated it a second time. Part of me hoped that if I kept talking, I wouldn't feel hands reaching from the darkness. The words did nothing to appease the Onyo, but something appreciated the sentiment. The next time the light roared to life, it stayed on. Most of the faces were gone, and the ones that remained were beyond the beam's reach. Reaching unsteadily to my feet, I was surprised to see the clouds had parted. The moon and stars were shining brightly. I wasn't foolish enough to let my guard down. There was still a heavy tension in the air, but it was possible to breathe again. Forcing myself to move slowly, I turned in a circle, hoping to see anything familiar. On my third pass, I finally saw it, the end of a blue ribbon tied around a tree. The rest was torn away, but that one beautiful scrap remained. I ran to it. The possibility it would vanish was all too real. Halfway there, a cold steel hand clamped around my ankle, and I face-planted, hard. If not for the mouthful of dirt and leaves, my scream would have surely woken the dead, though, to be fair, most were already awake. As I tried to roll over, a heavy weight fell onto me. It felt like a knee was pressing into the center of my back with two hands on my shoulders. My terror was complete. I could not move or think. No air was getting through, and my vision was going black. But everything was just blank. I thought the distant voices were hallucinations until whatever held me down suddenly vanished with the appearance of multiple flashlights. Fortunately, the hotel manager was always suspicious of my reasons for camping at Akigahara. When I hadn't returned that day, he reported me as missing, and the officials refused to start the search until morning. But the manager said that he had a bad feeling. He and his friends, with a few locals who volunteered there, all came out and looked immediately. So yeah, I definitely owe that guy my life. There's a lot I'll never know about what actually happens out here, but I've been thinking about it ever since. You know. What you believe is up to you, but I have a theory. Suicide was viewed differently in Japanese culture. In the feudal era, the act of seppuku was an honorable way to take one's own life. It was often carried out with a short blade to the abdomen, ensuring an especially agonizing death by disembowelment. There were a variety of reasons, usually to restore lost honor or to prove one's loyalty. But the important thing is, it wasn't the shameful cowardly act most Americans view it as. They had a special name and honor traditions to show it was not for the weak. Many poor souls were happy to die. They saw it as putting extra food in their children's mouths and freeing their caretakers from an unnecessary burden. They expected their sacrifice to be honored and remembered, not forgotten on the mountain with their rotting corpse. So I promised to remember, to pass their story on to all who would hear it. I think that's why some decided to let me leave, not out of kindness or mercy, 
but a desperation to be known. I'm not sure if that conveys the profound life lessons I've learned, but if nothing else, please try to be less judgmental towards others. Not everyone is raised with the same ideals or opportunities, but we all bleed. Anyway, that's my story. Even if you don't use it for the channel, I don't care. The fact that you saw is plenty. Most importantly, thanks for all the shitty nights you've gotten me through. Whether you know it or not, I think you might have saved a few lives when you started this channel. It's not just that you provide quality content, or entertainment, it's that you include all of us in every episode. You've created a second home where all of our friends are welcome, like family. I hope you know that. Strange Girl in Japan by Rahodai This happened in August 2019 while I was visiting my cousin and friends in Yokohama. I was 19 years old at the time. I was on my way back from my friend's apartment to my cousin's place where I was staying. It was close enough so I decided to walk. Despite it already being dark and late outside, I was rather close to Yokohama Harbor, walking on the pathway right next to the water. In the distance, I noticed a figure standing next to the railing, staring out to the sea. There was nobody else around, and I got a strange feeling from them, but I had to pass them regardless. The figure didn't seem to move when I got close. For some reason, I stopped to look at them when I was right behind. The person was wearing a black trench coat reaching past their knees and had their hands tucked in its pockets. While I was staring at them, they turned around to look at me. The street lamps provided a good light and I was standing close enough to make out their features. It was a girl, clearly foreign, and the first thing I noticed was how absolutely beautiful she was. Rather tall, maybe around 5'8", dressed in modern, entirely black clothes, and dark wavy hair reaching their shoulders. She was young, couldn't be any older than 18, maybe even younger. My gaze lingered on her eyes and a chill went down my spine. They were light but completely empty. It was like looking into a void. She stared at me. Her expression was blank. It didn't change since she had turned to look at me, but I had a feeling that she was waiting for me to do or say something. I tried but I couldn't find the words. I was frozen in place. We stared at each other for quite some time, until at some moment I blinked and she disappeared. There was nowhere she could have gone. She just vanished into thin air. Absolutely horrified, I hurried to my cousin's apartment. When he saw me, he pointed out that I looked white as a sheet, but hearing my story, he just laughed and thought that I hallucinated some sort of hot girl. I researched Japanese urban legends out of curiosity, but I couldn't find anything about a young girl wearing a trench coat. She didn't even look like a ghost. It was like something that a normal human being would be doing. A few days later, while my cousin and I were on our way back to his apartment, something on the other side of the street caught my eye. I looked, and in the shadow of a back alley leaning against a wall was that same girl, still dressed in black wearing a coat. She was clearly looking at me. Her expression was the same as the same before, blank and maybe just a little bit bored. I shook my cousin's shoulder and told him to look, but when he did, she was already gone. Once again, just vanished into thin air. For the rest of my stay, I had a feeling that someone was watching me whenever I went outside, and sometimes I could see the black coat in the crowd. I could have just had paranoia, but I was seriously afraid. When I came back home, 
that feeling stopped, and nothing weird ever happened again. Does anybody have any idea what could have been going on? College Exchange Horror by Anonymous A few years back, I was taking part in a college exchange for six months, where myself and a Japanese student swapped places to get a taste of life in each country. It was honestly one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Japan is weird by Western standards, but it's also full of some of the most wonderful, gracious people I have ever met in my life. The way they think about life, even down to some minute details, is as fascinating as it is thoughtful and going over there changed my life for the better. But something happened on a flight home from Japan, and although it didn't mar my experience entirely, it left a huge black stain on what should have been a very fond memory. The flight home was a long one, a very long one, like nine and a half hours, followed by another 10 hour flight. It's not easy just sitting there for that long. I'm sure many of you know that. It feels very claustrophobic, constrictive, and the fact that you really can't relax is just horrible. I suppose that's why people pop pills or something, or maybe plow those little mini bottles of liquor just to gain some semblance of relaxation. So, I'm in the middle of the second flight. This one is about eight or nine hours. That's going from Southern California to my hometown of Newark. I'd worked my way through most of the in-flight movies, and I'm sort of half watching this dumb sci-fi thing with Tom Cruise when I hear something over my headphones. I slide them off my head to hear the woman, a few rows ahead of me, getting all panicky in a foreign language. I'm no expert, but I'm almost certain it was Chinese, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, she's clearly very frightened or upset about something, and keeps hammering on the little button above her head that summons a flight attendant. A flight attendant comes by, trying to be as calm as possible, but obviously can't understand what the woman is saying because of the language barrier. It takes a moment or two for the woman to find some medium of communication, and then I watch as the flight attendant kind of leans into the middle of the seats for a moment before jolting back up and rushing down the aisle with a look of horror on her face. Moments later, she emerges, calling out something I'd only ever heard in bad movies up until that point. Is there a doctor on the plane? Are there any medical professionals on the flight? That's when I knew the situation was serious, that it wasn't just some poor Asian lady having a panic attack or something. The look on the attendant's face had told me everything, but this just made everything concrete. Something terrible had happened in the middle of those seats. Eventually, the flight attendant emerges from the business class section of the plane with a professional-looking man in a polo shirt, white hair and glasses. This was obviously an English-speaking doctor she'd managed to find. He does the same thing the flight attendant did at first, leans in obviously and gives the man a brief examination before suddenly bursting into action. He looks around for the biggest, strong-looking man he can find, then doesn't so much asking for help but tells them to help. I know that might come across as him being rude, but the authority which with he spoke was powerful. No one questioned him. They just got up to help, like it was their duty. People are amazing when it comes to an emergency like that. The bigger guys started working on lifting someone out of their seat, pulling them to the middle of the row, and carrying them towards the back of the plane. I had a glimpse of the person as they passed, an elderly-looking Asian man. He was as pale as a ghost, completely unresponsive by the looks of it. 
I looked back to see the doctor performing CPR on the guy after they laid him down, working on chest compressions, blowing into his mouth. That was distressing enough, but one of the big dudes started yelling, Come on, buddy. Come back to us. Open your eyes, man. You could hear the distress in the man's voice when it sank that the guy was dead. That he had no pulse, and that he was not coming back at all. Some of the passengers were crying, others were praying. It was one of the most intense situations I had ever been in, in my entire life. So it is at this point that I look back to see that the flight attendants had produced a body bag from somewhere on the plane. I didn't even know they had those things aboard. I mean, it was exactly the kind of thing you normally see on some Vietnam movie. This big plastic looking bag with a zipper running up the middle. The doctor and the bigger guys help put the Asian man inside before zipping it up while some of the flight attendants start reshuffling people for some reason. They move everyone behind me further up the plane, asking a few if they'd like impromptu business class and first class upgrades. But no one asks me, so in the end, it's me with a row of window seats to myself, with two free rows behind me, and then it's the back of the plane. I really should have seen it coming, and asked the attendants to move me too, but the whole thing was so intense and everyone had so much to deal with that I decided it was better just not to make a fuss. But like I said, when it dawned on me what was about to happen, I really wish I hadn't been so reasonable about the whole thing. Because suddenly, the guys are lifting the armrest on the second row behind me, leaning the seats back a little before hoisting the poor Asian man's body up and lying it on the seats. I can't even describe how incredibly uneasy the whole thing made me. There was no smell. I mean, the body was fresh. But just the idea that maybe less than two or three meters behind me lay the body of a dead man. It was so impossible to really relax, and now it was even more impossible to not feel anxious. I tried to ignore it, but as you can imagine, that's just impossible. I found myself looking back between the seats every so often, just peering back at the shiny material, and just knowing that poor guy inside is without a pulse. It was horrific. On the way off, a flight attendant took my name down and told me, I'd been entitled to money off my next flight for being so nice and quiet about the whole thing. That it hardly ever happened, and that they were so, so sorry that it had to be me that the body was nearest to. It was the least they could have done. But honestly, I don't feel like I want to fly again. Not for a long, long time to come. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true horror stories from Japan. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to slap that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm, and that helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters. If you want to make sure you don't miss any new episodes, be sure to turn on those notifications as I upload them multiple times a week on all things natural and supernatural. Don't forget to also subscribe, it really helps us out. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. You can also submit it at r slash thedarkswamp on reddit, I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to download your favorite scary stories from the swamp, you can absolutely do so entirely free from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Thank you, as always, for listening to the end if you did. I'd love to know what story was your favorite. As always, it helps me pick better ones in the future. 
I hope you guys are enjoying these longer videos. I really am doing my best to make these videos as long as possible. Hopefully, you guys will send in some good stories here so we can keep this trend going. I really appreciate you all. If you guys made it to the very end, don't forget to comment the code word, which is backwards clock. I love to see your comments. Confusing everybody who doesn't make it to the end is always fun. And I will pin the funniest one at the top, as always. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true deep woods horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. As always, if you enjoyed these stories, be sure to elbow that like button in the face, subscribe if you're new, and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day, and all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to share, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp, and stories like yours will help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you guys made it all the way to the end, I thank you guys very, very much. I'd love to know what story was your favorite, it helps me pick better ones for the future. If you have any suggestions, be sure to comment them down, and if you made it all the way to the end, today's code word is ambient sunset. Be sure to comment something funny down below. The funniest will get pinned at the top per usual. I appreciate all of you guys. I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.